Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, two pop-up clinics are coming to Hamilton to provide second doses of the Moderna vaccine. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the city, joins us to discuss that. The federal government is also in play here, too. The federal government now is raising the fine for travelers who refuse to quarantine in a designated hotel. The current hotel quarantine restriction, by the way, is supposed to expire June 21st. We'll see what the government's going to do next. And the U.S. is laying out details of its plan to share 80 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines. Canada is expected to receive some, but aren't there countries that need it more than we do? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Here in the local area, we're obviously concerned about new cases because that's one of the barometers that's going to be used as an indicator as to whether or not we're going to be opening up or whether or not we're going to use patios, what restaurants. I mean, let's face it, there's a long list of things that we'd like to see start happening sometime over the summer months. But uh, according to uh, Dr. Dominic Mertz, who's the Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Hamilton Health Sciences, the majority of Hamilton's cases right now involve that alpha variant first identified in the UK. But the greater risk now is a variant known as Delta, which is first identified in India. It seems to be even more transmissible than alpha. Uh, estimates being in the range of 50%, some suggest 30, other 70, up to 80% more. So very similar story that we have had when alpha came, came along. Exactly. Well, what does that mean? And what does this mean to the to the vaccination schedule and the efficacy of it? Uh, to talk about all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. It's been a long time. You've been busy. It has, it has Bill. It's uh, great to be back on the program. Right off the bat, let me uh, extend our congratulations, by the way, to you and your colleague, Paul Johnson, uh, named as uh, co-winners of the Citizen of the Year Award, the annual Citizen of the Year Award that's done by the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, which uh, I, I know you're, you're a team player and always have been, Doctor, but I mean, it's a reflection, I think, of the great work and coordination that we've had to, to do here in this community to try to, to battle this COVID. Uh, oftentimes, uh, not exactly seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, I, I'm glad to, that you both were winners of this. and th- I think it is an acknowledgement of the great effort and, and dedication that the two of you have shown here. Well, thanks so much, Bill. You know, it's been a, a, a very much a pleasure to, to work this through with Paul. He's just uh, a great leader, very wise man. Um, and it is on behalf of all of uh, those that have been serving in this time to, uh, to, to do the work that needs to be done, those across the city, uh, whether it's us in public health or public works or our human resource colleagues. Um, but uh, across the healthcare community as well, you know, we've had our paramedics helping us out um, with testing, with vaccinating people. Our primary care are pitching in both in continuing to care for people and, and vaccinating in a big way. And as well, the hospitals, of course, who have been so affected by this uh, throughout in the particularly the last several months as we've gone through this difficult time with the Alpha variant. So it'll be uh, going to continue to be a road ahead. And I know everybody on the team is uh, dedicated to continuing on going forward. I, I've told the story before, but and I'll just p- spend a couple of seconds doing this again. When I was on city council, and that's over 15 years ago now, I still remember a public health meeting where you warned the councillors about the possibility of pandemics. And, and a lot of us around the table were saying, are you kidding? Come on. In, in the 21st century? Pa- really? And, and you were aware of it. Public health was aware of it. And I know our medical teams here at McMaster and St. Joe's were certainly aware of it. And you've been planning for it. Uh, so even though we may have got caught off guard by this whole thing with, uh, with COVID-19, uh, you you, you had a game plan because you knew this was going to be a possibility. 
Yeah, absolutely, Bill. We did know it was a possibility. Of course, we expected it to be due to the influenza virus, and we did, of course, yeah. see, um, you know, H1N1 come through back in 2010 and the impacts that had happened uh, there. But, um, you know, it's been it's been planning that's been done across the whole of the healthcare sector and, and very much with business um, at, uh, at different points along the way, too. So, you know, I think people were, were not expecting anything quite as significant and uh, in scope and scale as this one has certainly been for all of us um, in so many different ways. But at the same time, there was a good foundation there for, for moving forward, definitely amongst the healthcare system, but amongst business as well as they, they had some awareness of this and what, the, what they might need to do and certainly supporting all of the different aspects of, uh, of our community, uh, whether it's schools, business, you know, uh, individuals who are vulnerable. That's, that's been critical throughout all of this. Uh, I, I want to get your call on uh, the comments from Dr. Mertz just before you and I started our discussion here. He was talking about, obviously, the, the, the alpha cases that have seemed to be dominant, but uh, expecting that the Delta uh, variant is uh, is going to be the dominant one here in Hamilton in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and again, we're hearing that, well, you know, and it, it may not be as deadly. We're hearing varying stories about that, but uh, easy, much more easily contagious in situations like this. How concerned are you about that? Well, this is the thing with this virus, with any virus really, is how it continues to evolve and different variants come into play. And that's why getting good control is so essential because you can't get variants if it's not out there being, if they're not out there being generated through the transmission um, in an ongoing way. So regardless, getting vaccination in arms and is uh, an absolutely critical element. And yes, definitely, you know, concerned about the emergence of this particular variant. Again, concerns that it's more transmissible even than the alpha variant was, and we definitely saw the impacts with that um, back uh, earlier this year as alpha came through and we saw you know, increased rates of transmission yeah, amongst people who weren't vaccinated. So the thing with this one, too, is that it does look like you need to have two doses of vaccine in order to get the best coverage. And so you know, everybody's looking at how do we move forward, how do we get uh, continue to move forward with first doses, and you know that's absolutely critical. We're just approaching the point where we have two out of three people in Hamilton vaccinated. That'll happen either today or tomorrow. Um, but, you know, that does mean one in three aren't. And so getting that first dose is really important um, just for general protection because the alpha variant still is dominant. But as we go forward to get that second dose in arms for as many people as we can as well. There's always a concern, and I'll point to the United States doctor as an example, where they had a huge rush uh, of people that basically said, yeah, you know, I'm rolling up my sleeve, let's get this on. It's really tapered off in the last little while, and they're very concerned about that percentage right now as to whether or not a herd immunity can actually be attained with this. Uh, we've done pretty well, as you've mentioned. We'll probably be at, at about 66% at least uh, by Monday in situations like that, but that's even then not good enough. Are you concerned that, that we may peak too soon here? Yeah, that's been a concern as we, we've gone through this. Every time when we've opened up to a group, as we've um, gone through this vaccination program, we see, you know, people rush forward for it, which is fantastic. And it, we know it's frustrating, too, because often we don't have the supply at that point to, to serve all of those that come forward initially. But we, we see about 40, 50% of people just get vaccinated as soon as, as possible when they're, they're eligible. And then we see the next sort of 15% come forward a little bit over over time and then you know it takes longer to, to continue to move the numbers up and so you know we're working with people to understand is that because 
they're still not you know, certain about the vaccines or what they're supposed to do. And so making sure people have good sources of information and lots of information and that lots of different people in the community, whether it's your, your family doctor or you know, your employer, whoever it may be, they have um, information for you about vaccination. Um, but we do want to continue to make sure it's very accessible. So you'll continue, continue to see lots of different hours. You'll see different clinics that are being worked um, with our partners in the community, whether that's at uh, the Perkins Centre or at Restoration House and, and working with um, our vaccine ambassadors and the different organizations across the community to to answer questions for people um, who are concerned, who, you know, for whom vaccination may hold some, some really bad memories about what has happened to cultures in the past. And so working through all of those sorts of issues is, is really important as we go forward to bring those rates up. Well, I know there was some concern, and you and I have talked about this in the past, about AstraZeneca and some of the concerns that have been raised about possible blood clotting. And, and, and one is one too many. We understand that. And I know there was some, some reticence for people uh, we, even to get that second shot because they were worried about that. But I know that the, the clinic that, uh, that was held uh, this past weekend, Saturday and Sunday, uh, at the health center down at, uh, at King Street, uh, the turnout was inc- incredible. Now, I'm, I'm not an AstraZeneca vaccine. I'm, I'm a Pfizer. So I, I had, but I took my wife down there, and the lineup was just incredible uh, all day Saturday, and I hear it, it's pretty busy Sunday. So obviously people are, are simply saying, look, it, we're going to put public safety and our safety at the front of the line here, and they're, they're rolling their sleeves up. Yeah, that's that's been really good to see as people have moved forward, and it's been important to to give people choice. And so that's what you saw with yesterday's announcement with by the provincial government that those who got AstraZeneca absolutely come forward, have a second dose of AstraZeneca, or if you prefer, um, you could go forward with a, a second dose of Pfizer or Moderna. And so they're just getting that functionality in place with the booking system. It's not quite there yet. But that is uh, something that they'll uh, be talking about as we go, or be putting in place so people can come forward as soon as possible. Now, you have some pop-up clinics. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's not the same as, as simply a walk-in clinic. You still, my understanding, you still have to make an appointment? That's right. So, so in general, we're still uh, making appointments for clinics. Some of our partners that are running clinics, they will do them sometimes as walk-ins for you know whatever works for the groups that they're trying to reach out to. Um, we do still try to book so we can make sure we have um, enough vaccine there at the clinic and we can make sure that all of our infection control mechanisms are in place because, of course, that's still the best method to uh, make sure there's no transmission of, of COVID-19. Um, but uh, those pop-up clinics, they uh, happen in areas and when we find we have a, a little extra vaccine, sometimes the province gives us a little bit extra because they keep back a st- strategic allocation to help out in certain spots and sometimes we do have some that has uh, been left over if we do have some people who've had to cancel out of, of clinics and so we immediately turn around and get a new clinic up as soon as possible to get that vaccine out. So particularly we know in this case our, our 80 plus uh, year old uh, group who has been eligible to move up their second dose Moderna clinic. We've had a tight supply of Moderna. It's been difficult to get an appointment so we're protecting these two pop-up clinics for those people who want to move up their Moderna second dose shot. So that's being booked through our hotline and uh, people can call in. It's running Sunday and Monday in two different spots in town and they can uh, get their uh, their second dose early if that's what they want to do. 
Are you concerned about supply? Uh, you know, to hear the, some of the, the pronouncements from politicians, and far be it for me to demean politicians, but, but they tend to want to put a little bit of spin on this. I mean, you know, with the news we had yesterday that the United States is starting to send more vaccines out, and some of that is going to come to Canada once again. Uh, one public official stated that, well, there's going to be a vaccine for every arm in Canada here by the end of August. And that, that's wonderful if that was true, but I'm, I'm juxtaposing that with what I'm hearing from you and from other public health officials that, well, you know what, the, the supply's not there. That, not as much as we'd like. Uh, you know, it's not as if we're running out, but we don't have as much as we'd like. Where are we on this? Well, our forensic supply has been fantastic. You know, they, they did their retooling back uh, in February and, and really put a kink in things, but now they have had a consistent steady supply, and that's been, been really great. Moderna's been a bit more of a challenge, um, and so that's why we're having a little bit of a challenge right now with these clinics for those that want to move up their doses. But the province is really trying hard to to you know level out the supply and meet the demand across the province uh, and support everybody so they can move forward. Going forward, we hear that supply on that front is not going to be a challenge um, at all. And so right now we have we have plenty of supply in general to to meet the need and the demand here in Hamilton as we go forward and anticipate that through the end of the summer. Uh, I think there's going to there may be these little slowdowns when it comes to things like Moderna and the piece around, you know, the NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, has recommended that people do get um, amongst those mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer, Moderna, get the same vaccine for the second shot. But we continue to look at and expect some news this coming week around, you know, mixing those uh, those vaccines and going forward. So that should clear up any issues on that front as well. And both NACI and, of course, uh, provincial public health officials are talking about now accelerating that second shot uh, timetable. How quickly can you accelerate that? To what point? I know that, uh, for instance, in the, the, the pop-up clinic you're just talking about here right now, you're still talking about receiving within a 12-week interval. Do you foresee a time when they're going to actually uh, shorten that 12-week interval? Yeah, I think that's what they're they're working on. And again, that's where supply will come come to play, that if we've got supply, they'll continue to shorten it up, shorten it up, shorten it up to the extent that they can. And so it does become, as they move through those groups, you still need that minimum um, interval that's required for any second dose, so about four weeks' time for the mRNA vaccines. And it's best with the AZ vaccines to have uh, 12 weeks um, between the doses in terms of getting maximum response. But um, we do think that the, that will continue to shorten up as we go forward and open up to the, uh, the each sort of successive group on this first in first out basis uh, for second doses. Because yeah, those are the questions I'm getting from emails every time we have conversations like this. Like, you know, I'm scheduled for my second dose in mid-August. I'm, can I move that up? Uh, I guess it depends on on your age at this point, doesn't it, Doctor? Yes, that's right. So right now it depends on your age. It's the 80-plus group that's been moved up. Our, our um, highest-risk healthcare workers were also moved up before that as well. And as we go forward, the province has laid out that plan that first they'll go to the 70-plus group um, in terms of opening up to second doses earlier, and then they'll continue to move through those groups in the way they were moved through the first time. So it'll open up then to the 60 plus as well as those who were at risk from a health perspective. So it's very much something to keep an eye on and, and check out the news on uh, what is happening with second doses. And when you become eligible for that second dose, you know, jump onto the, the provincial portal, take a look at, at what your existing appointment is and if moving it up for you would make a difference to get it in sooner. Uh, and by the way, if you do do that, uh, 
I, I know you from past conversations want to remind the listeners, uh, cancel the one that, that's scheduled for later on, too, uh, to make sure that, uh, that somebody else can fill that gap, too. Exactly. That's really important to do. Thanks for that, Bill. Doctor, uh, thank you so much for the great work. Congratulations once again on, on, a, on an honor well-deserved. And uh, please continue to keep up the good work. I know that uh, this is a team effort, and uh, we're appreciative not just for you and Paul Johnson, but for everybody involved uh, here in this community for the, the great work that you're doing to roll this out. And uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Bill. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting twist to what's going on with the uh, Canadian government's policy now towards uh, people that are governing across the border during this pandemic. You may remember that some months ago now, uh, Ottawa said there was going to be a fine system in place. People who were traveling into the country right now had to quarantine in a hotel for a number of days uh, and get a test. And if they've tested positive, they could remain or go back home rather and finish their quarantine. Well, there's an independent body did some study on this and said, scrap the plan. It's just not working. Uh, so the government responded to those uh, recommendations and basically increased the fine as opposed to scrapping the plan. Uh, it's, it's a rather bizarre twist to this. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. International air passengers who refuse the hotel quarantine stay could be fined $5,000. That's up from the current $3,000 fine. And it also applies to travelers who refuse a COVID-19 test upon arrival. The change comes as over 1,000 passengers have refused to stay at government-approved accommodations in the past month and a half, while 130 have refused a test. There was hope Last week, though, that Ottawa's hotel quarantine measure would soon be scrapped as a government advisory panel recommended against it. That panel is instead pushing for people to arrange their own quarantine that would be at one place for the full 14 days. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. It sparked some debate, which I guess has been ongoing ever since the government made the policy, as to whether or not this policy has been effective at all in, in, in curbing the, the, the number of new cases that have come in here or whether it was just a, a feeble attempt. Joining us to talk about this is a Sabal Ray, a James McGill Professor of Operations Management at the Desaltels Faculty of Management and an Academic Director at uh, the School of Retail Management. Uh, professor, uh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. You, you've studied supply management for many, many years in many, many countries right now. We've talked about uh, access to borders and, and people and, and goods moving back and forth. Uh, as you've seen the reaction and you've seen the, the, the results such as they are with what the Canadian government is trying to do, uh, has this policy had any effect, any positive effect at all? And the data is, the detailed data is not available, but it doesn't seem to have a big effect uh, in general because uh, anyway, the number of yeah, travel is quite low, and uh, among them, the proportion of people who are uh, having these positive things are quite low. So uh, I do not think overall there has been too much impact of this uh, quarantine. It's obviously very, very difficult, isn't it, though, for us, to, Professor, to separate the politics from this, from the pragmatic side of this, as to whether or not it's an effective policy. Uh, one, you know, one level of government, that being the federal government that instituted the policy, are telling us it's the most effective way to do this. You've got another level of government, in this case, it's the province of Ontario and the premier, uh, suggesting that it's porous and, and new cases are coming in and they're driving numbers up. Uh, as, as, do we assume here that the truth is somewhere in between there? Oh, absolutely. The, the truth is somewhere in between there. And it, indeed, it's, it, it's not even clear from the data that how much of the uh, cases have been driven by international travel. Uh, 
but obviously international travel is somewhat of a low hanging fruit to uh, stop uh, and there were some mistakes made initially in the uh, pandemic not closing the borders at least initially uh, quickly so uh, truth is somewhere in the middle and uh, politics always comes into the picture in, in these types of situations yeah. But in, a, in, in this particular circumstance, I mean, yeah. for instance, the latest concern, as, as you know, Professor, is the, is the, the latest variant that seems to have been morphed in, uh, in India, and there's concern about this. Yeah. Uh, and, and when that happened with the UK variant and what happened with other variants, there was a hue and cry to say, don't let anybody from that country come in here. Is, is that an effective way to actually deal with this? Uh, like, again, it doesn't seem to be that is a very effective way. There has to be strict screening. There is no doubt about it people who are coming there is no doubt about it there has to be strict screening and the the uh, 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 the measures have to be enforced as much as possible but stopping everything doesn't seem to be a uh, really a good uh, policy and now the it's not only means like the number of uh, people coming in now uh, that canada has even closed all flights from india almost now for one and a half months right so um, but closing everything doesn't seem to be a good policy in this case. Well, and the fact that, uh, you know, the medical professionals here in the province right now uh, in, in Ontario are telling us that there still seem to be uh, new issues uh, with this latest virus and that variant of this virus right now, even though those flights haven't been allowed in here in the last little while, uh, which indicates that it's not a, a foolproof way of to try to, to control this, is it? Yeah, absolutely not. It's like, yeah, uh, there has to be, I think, the closing everything, closing borders, closing everything, is not a way to uh, get ahead of this problem. Uh, enforcing the rules, doing proper screening, uh, those things are absolutely necessary. There is no doubt about it. But closing everything is not the solution. How do you account for the, the let's call it the human reaction to this even when the the this law was put in place this policy was put in place i think it goes back to february now professor yeah uh, a number of people well snowbirds that were already down in the states and in other parts yeah. of the world were defiant about this and simply said we're not even going to pay any attention to this you know we, we may get the test before we get on our plane or something but you know but there's no way we're going to pay out of our own pockets for a hotel for three days or 14 days or whatever it is uh and and they've been defined they've been fined i don't know that the government's actually gone after these people to collect these fines it just seems as if uh this looks good on paper as far as the government's concerned but i'm not so sure they're even crazy about trying to enforce it Exactly, and how how many people they will go after basically, and uh, um, this this will get bogged down in certain laws and regulations, and it will go on and on, and the, the government might spend more money in uh, uh, lawsuits than uh, in getting the money back, whatever money it is getting back. And also there is this issue of this land border versus air borders. If there are there have been instances of people coming by flights to US. Uh, and then taking a taxi uh, or a car uh, to Canada, in which case they do not have to do, uh, do this three-day quarantine in hotels. So there is, it's large part it has been for a show, uh, more than anything else this year. One of the other things that has always <clears throat> confounded me, though, is, is is this whole idea about how they've decided this was going to be the case. Initially, it was going to take 14 days, and then they said, no, 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 you get a test as soon as you land. 
and, and you, you know this policy, but just to remind our listeners, uh, and you have to go to a hotel for at least three days until you get the test results. And if it's, it's a negative result, well, then you can continue your quarantine. You can leave the hotel and go home. But even the experts are saying that's not enough time. If, if there's a problem there, uh, three days was just an arbitrary number that was picked. I mean, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all to the medical experts. Yeah, indeed, means like uh, which was mentioned uh, that uh, the incubation period is not three days, so uh, it, it might come sometime afterwards, basically. And indeed, uh, uh, in the hotels, they are in the quarantine hotels. What I have heard is that um, uh, the good thing, whatever good thing you can come out of it, is that it sometimes the stay is not for three days. As soon as there is a negative test, you might be able to leave the hotel, basically. So it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, three days. If you get your uh, result back, negative result back in one day, you can leave after that. But the thing is that uh, the incubation period is more than three days. So there is only a show of safety uh, through these types of measures, basically. Yeah, 10 to 14 days is what we were told the incubation period is on average. That would be, yeah. Uh, that will be a, a disaster, but uh, three days, uh, so it, uh, ultimately these three days is just to show a sense of safety rather than actually being safe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, because they could be released after three days with a negative test and then uh, have a positive test three days later, or oh, not, because yeah. they wouldn't—they they probably wouldn't get tested because they've already been, you know, been cleared. So, but they may still be positive, and as you say, be carrying a variant like this. The other aspect of this too is I know that one of the arguments in favor of this was, the, I think, the anecdotal stories we heard initially. Uh, people that left the airport and you know and said, "Okay, I'm going to quarantine at home," and they wouldn't. I mean, you know, they go shopping, they do any number of other yeah, things. Exactly. Well, but, but, Professor, if you let them go home after three days and say, I'm going to finish the quarantine, if they're that, if they're that like-minded that they're going to do this, they're going to do it anyway. There's no way to, to police this or marshal this. Yeah, I have heard from one or two of my friends who have done quarantine that there have been uh, random checks. Uh, but, again, means like how many people will you check? So that, that again, quarantine, whether someone is following all the quarantine rules is very difficult to... Um, administer and uh, to check uh, constantly basically but i have heard there have been random checks uh, at least two of my friends who are, who are doing quarantine they were checked at home that whether they are following all the uh, quarantine rules or not yeah i've heard i've heard that information too sometimes it's just a follow-up phone call uh, one instance uh, one individual emailed me a couple of weeks ago i'm sure you've heard these stories as well professor they actually knocked on the door and said you know we're yeah, looking yeah, for yeah. so and so in the two of my friends cases they knocked on the door um and these were also uh, colleagues of mine professors they were teaching and they had to tell the students that oh sorry someone is at my door and that that time there were the people checking on them that whether they are following the rules or not basically yeah Human nature suggests, though, that if you if you don't want to follow the rules and if you're just inclined that way, that you're going to thumb your nose at the authority here. Uh, a, a quarantine like this is not going to really change that. You're still going to be like that. But if you if you want to be compliant, and I think most of us are, we're going to be compliant. Yes, exactly. If someone wants to flout the rules, they will do. They will find a way to do it, basically. So, uh, and given the number of cases, given. People live in different places. Uh, you might give one address and you might stay at another address. All these types of things might happen and uh, it's very difficult to uh, enforce all the rules. <clears throat> but I think the focus should be more on the enforcing part rather than closing things and making life difficult for everyone, basically. 
try to enforce as much as possible. Obviously, there will be uh, cases where the enforcement uh, might not be 100%, but that should be the focus. Basically. How, what's your sense of the, the cooperation between nations in a situation like this? I mean, it, it would be be beneficial if, if there was testing done before people even got on the plane. That's supposed to be happening. Do you get any sense at all that, 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 that other nations are being compliant with that to, to try to ease this process? So, uh, in fact, there was this, uh, there is some discussion also that um, some of the countries are not, uh, there, there have been some false uh, results being, uh, even in Canada there were news that uh, they are, they cannot believe in some of the test results from certain countries because they think that um, these results are not uh, valid results. So, um, so there is this issue of whether the tests itself are valid or not, the results that are being produced. But there has to be, uh, there, every country seems to be doing their own rules and regulations. Somewhere it is 10 days quarantine, somewhere 14 days quarantine, somewhere one week quarantine, somewhere there is this three days hotel stay, somewhere five days hotel stay, somewhere no hotel stay. So if you are trying to go anywhere, you have to be like, it's 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 every country for themselves. There is no common rules. But the the problem with that, of course, is that when you've got sixteen different sets of rules in sixteen different countries, uh, there's no consistency. You don't know what's going on. I mean, we've heard stories, and I know you have as well, Professor, of, of falsified documents. Uh, there's a black yeah. market out right now. You can buy a positive test. You don't even need to take one. Just for X number of dollars, uh, I got you know a guy, and all of a sudden you can have a positive test. And sometimes they're caught. Sometimes they're they're, they're seen to be falsified. Other times we don't know, do we? Yeah, absolutely. That's my point. That that's what I was trying to make. That uh, uh, the, the, whether the tests themselves are valid is being questioned, and then the the next question is that um, means like what? As a common person who is trying to go somewhere or making uh, making plans to go somewhere, how will means like it's a they have to go through this whole set of regulations of every country to. Uh, to see that what is happening, what, what are the specific rules for that country, uh, in, out, if there is a transit, there is another issue. And this is this will make very, very life difficult uh, as we are opening up, basically. The, the, the life will become very difficult. Again, the, the, another issue, I think, I do not know whether you will talk about that, that this issue of vaccine passport, whether there should be a vaccine passport or not, that, that's the next question which will come. And there seems to be more strength. I mean, that seems to be a discussion that's that's ramping up a little bit with a not, for instance, with a lot of the G7 nations right now, that in one shape or form, the, the vaccine passport may be part of this. The other element of this, too, is is there's no one standard here, is there, Professor? I mean, you know, you can talk about people coming from, from, from India or from the UK, whatever the case might be, uh, but... You, you, with your expertise in supply chain, I mean, there are still goods moving back and forth across this border. Uh, the people that are transporting those goods, are they all getting tested? Apparently, that there's concern about falsified documents there, too. We can't really yeah. monitor that. Uh, I, I know, for instance, our premier in Ontario here is complaining about the porous border, but we also know that his government has just already okayed thousands and thousands of foreign students to come back into the province. Uh, you know, what's the protocol for them? Uh, there's just so many variables here that it's, it's very difficult to try to track this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, and there are so many countries, each country is with their own rules and regulations, and it, it becomes a real, real uh, nightmare for the people. And as you said, that supply chain has to be still open. And then people, but again, my question is that, how many cases have been 
caught by this international travel or by uh, uh, this uh, supply chains going back and forth, I think the numbers have been quite low. More than this is obviously this is an easy thing to attack. That, that there is no doubt about it. But if you see the data, there doesn't seem to be the the cases have gone. The cases have been much because of these types of things, basically, whether the international travel or the supply chains going back and forth. Yeah, it's a great question that I wish we had an answer to. Now, the government has told us, by the way, that uh, that this policy is supposed to expire. I think it's June 23rd, and there may be a reevaluation. Yeah, something like that. Yes, exactly. There could be a reevaluation yeah. at that point. We'll have to wait and see if they finally uh, accept the recommendations of the panel. Uh, yeah, Professor, the recomm- recommendation is very clear that they, uh, at least the, the quarantine should stay, but the three-day uh, stay in the hotel uh, should be scrapped. Well, here's hoping they adhere to that. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time and for your perspective on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Good Bye. talking with you. That's Professor Sable Ray, of course, uh, McGill Professor of Operations Management and uh, an expert when it comes to supply chains and people going back and forth across the border and, and the efficacy or lack thereof, I guess, of some of these government policies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. News about vaccines. Well, we've been talking about what's happening here in Ontario, but uh, some good news uh, south of the border, too. A White House official now says uh, that there are going to be doses that are going to be distributed distributed right around the world. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says uh, the good news here is, first of all, the vaccines are going. Uh, Secondly, the U.S. is not asking for anything in exchange. We're not seeking to extract concessions. We're not extorting. We're not imposing conditions the way that other countries who are providing doses are doing. We are doing none of those things. Um, These are doses that are being given, donated free and clear to these countries uh, for the sole purpose of improving the public health situation and helping end the pandemic. Uh, great news for an awful lot of people, but what about Canada? Now, I understand Canada may be in line for some of these things, but there's an awful lot of pressure on the Canadian government right now to say, hey, wait, there are countries around the world that need it more than you do right now. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. Reggie, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Happy Friday. And to you, too, what's it like to live in a jurisdiction where you can actually walk up and down the street and go to a park and a house party and everything? We're, we're, if we in Ontario, we, we're dying to find out, Reggie. It's a different world down there now, isn't I mean, it? Yeah, I mean, look, it, the, the day and the time will come uh, for Canadians. Uh, I've said this to everybody I know on that side of the border that is waiting for this. Uh, and when that day does come, it is still going to feel strange. My first house party last week, my first restaurant, my first backyard crab boil, uh, they all felt a little bit out of place for the first hour or so and then you kind of ease yourself back into it this really is uh, a time where you're trying to remember what it used to be like Mm -hmm. uh, and it just doesn't quite feel like it well, it's it's odd to see. I mean, obviously, you're watching the hockey playoffs, you know, to see 17,000 people in the arena, uh, as they did, and, and then you turn on to the game from Winnipeg, and I think there's 500 people in there or something like that. He just figured, it just, it, I guess it reminds us, we've got a long way to go here, but uh, there's there's a lead to follow. I mean, the, the, the way that the, the U.S. government and, and others have ramped this up over the last little while, you're actually, you know, you're benefiting from an awful lot of hard work that a lot of people did to get you to where you are, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, the United States, uh, you know, is kind of highlighting its scientific ingenuity, but also its global privilege. And the, 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 you know, the reason that privilege exists is because there's just so much wealth in this country. Uh, and that's the reason that they were able to develop, produce, manufacture and distribute vaccines uh, to this country 
uh, at such a rapid rate. It also has ties back to former President Trump, who, when this was all being worked out for contracts in place that forced the uh, drug manufacturers to ensure that Americans were going to be first uh, in line. Uh, and you're seeing that now with numbers uh, on the plus side of 63, 64% for people over the age of 18 with one shot, for those over the age of 12 with both shots uh, on the approach to 50%, uh, if not higher. So while there was concern, there was question, there was comment over how the vaccine program was being developed, uh, developed and implemented, here we are now six months into the year, uh, and we are at a point of where despite still having to deal with a bit of an uphill climb, it really does feel like flat ground and going back down. Reggie, when you're at one of these events, I, I know we're kind of getting off on a tangent, but I guess we we're just thinking about what could be and what would probably be at our place, too. Uh, what about mask wearing? I know that Dr. Lewinsky from the CDC talked about that the other day, and they were talking about school environments and things of this nature. But when you're at events like this, is, is it optional? Or are people just saying that was then, this is now? What's, what's the status? Well, so for, if, if it's a personal thing uh, and I'm at a house party or uh, for, for when I was at a backyard event, uh, the, the invite goes to the core group of friends who have been vaccinated uh, fully okay. and have been vaccinated for a couple of weeks. So if we're doing it in, in kind of like our, our social circles, we try to be safe. Because masks are no longer mandated across the United States uh, as widely as they were just a couple of months ago, uh, it really becomes a matter of personal preference. You know, if I'm walking into a grocery store, if I'm walking into uh, some kind of public setting, I still wear my mask. I went for a coffee this morning. I put my mask on to walk inside the coffee shop. Even though places aren't really requiring them and you don't have to wear it if you are fully vaccinated, there is still that fear that you're around people that may not be following that honor system. And because of that, uh, you know, it's just there are some people that have uh, have, you know, their, their own personal comfort that they have to take into mind here. Doctors have already said it takes 28 days to break the habit of wearing a mask because we've been doing this for so long now. For a lot of people, it's going to take a lot longer than that, even though the rules have been listed. Well, talk about that, because that's, I, I think, a very relatable issue here uh, to what we're talking about, about vaccine uh, uh, efficacy, but also uh, the number of people uh, that, that are being vaccinated right now. Uh, as, as you've told us in previous reports, I mean, there was a huge uptake, of course, in January when uh, President Biden started this, this rollout. And, you know, he wanted to get a million people in the first hundred days, and then it went to two million people. And he's being able to hit those targets. He's not talking about 70 percent by the 4th of July, but uh, as you just mentioned a minute ago, they're lagging behind it right across the states now the last number i saw reggie was about 65 percent and not moving very quickly yeah the numbers are starting to come down look we hit a peak uh, earlier in the year where at some point three and four million vaccines were going out every single day uh within the last couple of days those numbers have fallen to below six hundred thousand a day below five hundred thousand a day uh and it shows that we're now hitting that block of americans who are either hesitant still or refusing to get their vaccine, which is why you're seeing this uh, this kind of federal push to get the government in line with the private sector to create more incentives for people uh, to get a shot. Because, look, the president said he wanted 70 percent of the adult population with that vaccination by uh, Independence Day. Uh, it's quickly approaching. And there are fears that he may miss his first target. Uh, because there are still people that are on the fence, because it's about the science, because it's about religion, because it's simply about uh, a political factor. Um, the, the, the president and the White House understand that they need to do more to drive this home, to tell people your freedoms will come back if you can get yourself vaccinated. Uh, the concern here is uh, I just mentioned Dr. Lewinsky just excuse me a couple of minutes ago.
suggesting that there could be another wave. And, and she mentioned a number of states, uh, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Wyoming. Uh, you talked about the political element of this. Uh, it, it's not lost on, I guess, a lot of us that those are all Republican-dominated states. It, it, is, is politics do- starting to dominate the, with this element of the people that have not yet received or, or intend to get vaccinated? I think it, 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 uh, you might be easier to ask, has politics ever left the picture for a lot of these people? Because this is a pandemic that was incredibly politicized from the very beginning when you had former President Trump make those comments that he was simply downplaying uh, the vaccine to either not cause any kind of rile up or to not drive people away from the Republican Party. Uh, and because you had the, the virus politicized, you had the uh, policies in place to try and slow the spread politicized, you had the vaccine politicized, I really do think that's metastasized in uh, a large chunk of the Republican population, but also to remember that the evangelical part of the United States often falls within the Republican Party as well. And there are some people with a religious belief that do want to stay away from this vaccine. So there are hurdles uh, and walls that are trying to be broken down by the Biden administration. Uh, And when you see uh, the number of states that are seeing potential increases here to their case numbers, albeit lower than what they were, uh, you know, months and months ago. We've also heard from the CDC that the growing number of people being hospitalized are actually those under the age of 18. So there is a further drive here on parents to ensure that they are getting their children vaccinated, that they are paying attention to the science, because we know that the virus can have uh, a significant impact on the younger population. So you've talked about incentive programs and some pretty creative things going on there right now. I know the the Kroger uh, store chain uh, is launching a $5 million uh, community integrity giveaway. In other words, you can win money. It's like you go into a lottery if you get vaccinated. Uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee's got a a similar program, Shots of a Lifetime, where you can, uh, I think $2 million is on the line in situations like this. Uh, I saw some reporting on this the other day that in New York, they're actually having mobile clinics set up near night spots in New York City. So the young people that are going out to have a good time can get a vaccination on the way in and the way out uh is, is this stuff working are, are they actually getting crowds at these things at these situations and a buy-in to it yeah look the, the cash part of these incentives uh is working we've seen uh in places like ohio where these million dollar weekly lotteries uh are being offered up the numbers are creating an uptick uh in vaccination and there is kind of a thought process here that people are motivated by uh, a prize by getting something in return outside of their health getting something that they could physically hold or see will entice more people to get a shot and you're right there are a lot of these uh, vaccines that are being set up in places where people are going to start wanting to congregate again near bars a couple of bars here in dc uh, are doing free vaccination clinics uh if you go in and get a beer we've seen anheuser bush is going to be a part of this big vaccination push. Even, you know, one state over from here in D.C. in West Virginia, they're offering scholarships, they're offering trucks and trips, but they are also offering up five rifles and five shotguns for people to come out and get their vaccine. Uh, so they're going, going to the furthest extremes here to give things away, but understandably, people are going to be interested in potentially getting their hands on these prizes. Uh, well, whatever works, I guess. The, the, the shotguns for vaccine may be a little stretching, but I, I, I guess, you know, whatever gets you, floats your boat in situations like this. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the announcement, though, about uh, distributing vaccines across the world. Uh, and, and a bit of a surprise announcement that uh, they're they basically donating these. Uh, and I know an awful lot of countries around the world that are having shortages right now uh, have been complaining about the way that they feel as if they're getting, uh, well, used, shall we say, by the Pfizer's and, and AstraZeneca's, et cetera, that are overcharging them in some situations. Uh, this must be welcome uh, news to an awful lot of these countries that we're very concerned about, 
you know, how they were going to pay for this stuff for the, uh, the, the large yes, I guess, of the Biden administration. Yeah. And I mean, look, this comes after uh, mounting pressure on Washington to be able to unlock some of its surplus of vaccine that is uh, more readily visible uh, with so few people now actually lining up to get their shot. There was pressure building to get this out of the country and to put it into the arms uh, of countries of whether they don't have an ability to negotiate with drug manufacturers or they simply don't have the means to be able to pay for these kind of bulk uh, 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 vaccinations. Uh, this announcement yesterday was a long time coming for this president who has made it clear from the very beginning he wants to be the global leader in helping to end this global pandemic. Uh, and while it's only going to be an initial batch of 25 million doses being sent out, uh, they are targeted to certain areas of the country. Some of them are targeted to political allies uh, of Washington. But at the end of the day, it is just the beginning. We've been told that this is going to be a kind of monthly handout uh, in the months to come. Uh, with all the, uh, we know about the AstraZeneca stuff, and I guess the, the reporting that you uh, were telling us a couple of weeks ago now is like, my understanding is they haven't even used any of their AstraZeneca supply, so a lot of that stuff is available, I guess, for distribution. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson stuff, but there's still a couple of hurdles with the J&J, is there not? Uh, well, I mean, look, when it comes to AstraZeneca, number one, uh, there are 60 million plus doses of the, of the vaccine sitting in the United States, not approved by the FDA. So there are conversations to try and get uh, uh, the AstraZeneca out of America and into the arms of nations that have approved it uh, for first and second doses. Johnson & Johnson, uh, well, it was running into problems in the United States. There were questions about its efficacy. There were questions about potential side effects from it. It is still in use across the country. It's still in use around the world. And the Johnson & Johnson dose, uh, because we know that it doesn't need to be kept at the same uh, uh, refrigeration levels and because it's only a single dose, is going to be more beneficial to countries uh, where they may have problems running into storage for it. So the United States is happy to be including it into this uh, group of three, along with Moderna and Pfizer, to get it out. It's worth pointing out here, Bill, uh, 25 million first shots going out, 80 million will be sent out by the end of June. That only works out to about 13% of the uh, 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 manufactured uh, vaccine in the United States per month. So it still is leaving a considerable amount uh, back for domestic distribution and domestic stockpiling. Which, by the way, I'm glad we just put out our time, and I'm glad you brought that up because I know there was a concern about uh, about childhood vaccinations and, and whether or not that was going to go forward. And I know that Dr. Fauci referenced that, uh, which may be, I guess, one of the reasons they're holding back. They really want to turn the, the, the notch up on that, don't they? Absolutely, they do. Uh, but they also understand that, well, they still need to be able to get this under 18 population and eventually under 12 with schools starting up again in September uh, fully vaccinated uh, with a growing number of variants around the world right now that are posing a threat uh, to people who even have a vaccine. The, uh, the need for having booster shots available a year from now is also going to lead uh, to the need to have hundreds of millions of doses uh, available, which is then going to play again into the world's hands. If Canada is, is a country that's going to need additional shots because it needs boosters, uh, the United States will be able uh, to be put into a position uh, of being able to help out their kind of their global allies and those in need. So again, this is the Biden administration's attempt to try and be uh, the world leader that they were kind of lacking in uh, for most of last year. Great news, I guess, for an awful lot of countries, including Canada, on this. Uh, Reggie, we'll be watching for updates on this uh, on Global National with you uh, in the uh, days ahead. Thanks again so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy those backyard parties, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
Thank you, Bill. Okay, take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News uh, down in the uh, nation's capital, the Beltway down in Washington, D.C. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.